0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process
1: in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now, today we've got a uh, uh, special co-host back, Mr. Brian Turnoff from the Mind's Eye Podcast.
2: Oh well, thank you. I'm imagining a digital applause right now, so thank you all.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll get the effects added in for you. <laughs>
2: Make you feel good. It's
1: been a couple of months. What have you been up to?
2: Yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, you know, i got the day job going on, the podcast, um, working on a book right now. So, yeah, I've got, got a few uh, projects in the works right now, so I've been focusing on that. But uh, I always love coming back to here and appreciate having me as always. Yeah, I'd be interested. What kind of book are you going to write? This will be your first, right? It, it's the, yeah, it is. It's the exact opposite of uh, pretty much anything that we're going to be talking about tonight, so apologies to Mr. Jensen, but uh, it's going to be uh, paranormal. It's uh, historic, ghost stories um, that stem back, you know, hundreds of years, and then it's, um, there's a certain theme that, that's built into that that uh, we'll talk about when the book comes out.
1: <laughs> wow, that's, that sounds interesting. And here we go. Now, today we've got... Uh, uh, Really interesting show, I think. Um, I've had uh, our guest on before. Um, Mainly it was about conspiracy theory stuff that was going on at the time. But um, today we got him because he's got a new book, Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. So, Robert A. Jensen, thank you for taking the time for us today.
0: You're welcome. I always enjoy uh, chatting with you guys.
1: So, Robert, um, now for the people that don't know who you are, uh, let's, let's explain um, why you'd be writing a book about this. Uh, what, what kind of work do you do uh, so that people understand?
0: i spent most of my adult life responding to what I call mass fatalities, disasters, crisis management, but typically those that involve a very sadly and tragically large loss of life, things like Oklahoma City, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the... 2010 Asian earthquake or the Boxing Day tsunami, and um, I don't even count the number of plane crashes and bombings. Uh, so I spent a lifetime doing that, and uh, there's a lot of lessons that have been learned. And I'd like to, you know, like to say that I'll never have to go to another event. And I, I've been to two in my lifetime that killed a quarter of a million people, and. I hope that they don't occur anymore, and I'd love to, to never have to go back to work, but I don't think that's realistic. And what I'd like to do is help people understand what to expect and how to better manage crisis, because I don't think we always do the best job.
1: Mm. What, what, what got you into that kind of work? Uh, I, I, was that something you've always aspired to to get into or did it just happen by accident um, I, I, I don't know if
0: it was by accident, it wasn't an aspiration I went to military high school so I had a little bit different background to begin with and then went to uh, school in California and took criminology was deputy sheriff for a couple of years in school to pay for school and got my commission went in the Army and I guess because of the law enforcement background in the Army I got put into the quartermaster corps the mortuary area and there was only one company or one unit at the time, and I commanded it, and that's when we had Oklahoma City, we were going into the invasion of Haiti, we had the Balkans in 95, and some high-profile political uh, events, plane crashes, and I just happened to be there at that time, so it just kind of stuck with me that every time something happened after that, somebody said, oh, let's, let's get Jensen, and I'm just went off from there, and when I left the Army in 98, I came to a company called Kenyon, which had started in 1906, whose business was basically doing the same thing. And I became CEO in 2003, and I liked the company so much, I bought it in 2007.
1: Wow. That's, wasn't there a shaver or a guy? Who was that that used to have that? commercial? Yeah.
0: That's right. I, I, I copied from him. I hope it doesn't yeah. <laughs> uh, only a
1: few of us are old enough to know that one. But uh, wow! So, but I would imagine this kind of work. Okay, this is really commendable. Like you are probably the uh, one of the few guests I I really admire because of this type of work you do, and you've done it for a long time. Thank you. But this kind of work, it must take its toll on on you and the close people around you, like family or anybody like that. It must be kind of like, wow, um, there's a lot of grief involved with this kind of work.
0: Yeah, and I I try to go into that a little bit in the book. It's classify almost as a memoir. It's kind of a, you know, it's it's going to be a different book to different people. But sadly, I think probably people around me have paid a bigger price than me because I I have a a daughter, and she once has a, as a child, at Christmas, she gave me a, a bunch of stickers that said, here's my dad's job. And it's, he gets a telephone call, he leaves, he goes to an airport, he waits for another telephone call and goes somewhere else. Um, because you never knew you were going to be home. I mean, and, and, you know, we had these five-year cycles, 2001, of course. Um, God, I was I just come back from New York after being up there for about six weeks, I was home for... You know, or four weeks. I was home for two nights. And Italy's worst air disaster occurred. So the next morning I was a plane to Italy for the, um, the crash in Lenate. And, and then spent probably 18 months off and on uh, in New York City along with going to some other events. And then 2004, the end of 2004, with the Boxing Day tsunami, that the Christmas, Christmas in, in the U.S. time tsunami that killed almost a quarter million people in Asia. Um, I left and got back, and we had a got Hurricane Katrina. We had a massive, very difficult plane crash in Crete. So it was me always being gone, and then when I was home, it's you know it's like then I come home, I got to clean up and pack everything because I don't know when the next phone call is going to ring. So you're never really off, and then when you own the company or you're the boss, you know you have you're responsible for for all the you know, employees, so taking care of the normal problems, making sure there's resources for them to do their job. And, um, for that, for me personally, I, you know, I don't know, I'm, I guess one day maybe I'll suffer some of the consequences. I, I don't, it, it's, I can't control it. I, you know, I feel very sorry for the dead. The best I can do for them is give them, I hope to give them a name and, and dignity. But really, what I try to focus on is the living and caring for them. and I go into it with an expectation that we can't make it better. Because we can't undo the event. We can't bring back the dead. We can't uninjure people. The goal is to not make it worse. Um, And that means telling people things that they don't want to hear. Most people don't want to know, but they need to know. And afterwards, they're actually, I think, a little bit relieved. Because they can make a plan. They have an expectation.
1: You know, in some of these uh, disasters you cover, like uh, you've been part of um, effort, like things like um, that are man-made, like 9-11 and stuff, does that kind of make you angry?
0: Uh, no, because, I, you know, as a deputy, I, I used to, I learned some hard lessons pretty quick about people's behavior. And there's a lot of nice people in the world, and there's a lot of bad people. And the bad people are scumbags, just because they're scumbags. It's not anything anyone's done. I'm not talking about the, you know, the, the, the person who speeds. I'm not talking about, the, you know, petty criminal who makes a mistake. and says oh I need to do better. I'm talking about people who are violent, deliberate. Um, and, you know, the, the people that we would interact with in Fresno County back in the 80s, um, you know, there were some not so lovely people, and the one thing I always learned is like, if I pulled over a drunk driver or somebody in the influence. I didn't try to argue, and I didn't try to use logic, because they weren't in the same place I was. So logic wasn't going to apply, and with some of the people, like the 9-11, and I did the, you know, I did the bombing at the UN headquarters in Baghdad. And I, I think the worst was probably in the Balkans in 95, um, when I went into Tuzlo and Sarajevo and that whole region, just as, as the war was winding down. Saw what I call industrial mass killings, mass graves. They're just some really bad people in
1: the world. Hmm. Now, do you think the general public really understands what goes on after an event like that? Like what what the process is that you go through, or any of your team or people that help to uh, clean it up, so to speak, or um, get a hold of the people you know, survivors or survivors' families and stuff, like the whole process of what you go through. Do you think the, the public really really knows what you guys do? No, and more
0: importantly, a lot of practitioners don't because they haven't been through it before. And that's what is one of the goals of some of the chapters in the book, to kind of say, here's, here's what happens, here's what the expectations are. Because we're dealing with, and I'm sure you've talked about some of your shows, what we call the CSI effect. Yeah. Where, oh, it's a crash, well, it's all in an episode. Maybe two episodes. Everyone's identified, everyone goes home, and it, life is quickly normal. And for, for us, and for the families, I say it's typically um, you know, going to be at least a year process. Because they have to get through all the dates. They have to get through all the holidays. And, and understand that it's not a closure, it's a transition from what was normal to what will be normal at the same time, not having a really clear roadmap and maybe not having answers about their loved ones. So, so no, I I don't think uh, the public and, again, I don't think practitioners necessarily have a clear understanding of what to expect. You
2: know, for me, Robert, uh, when I was reading through personal effects, I mean, to me, the most significant part I mean, obviously, the tragedies, I mean, they're sickening. You've been through everything, 9-11, Bali bombings, Katrina, etc. But for me, the, I guess what stuck out was that the most sickening part wasn't really the descriptions of the body parts, like, thrown about, or the bloodshed that you described, but really the bureaucracy and the response and the leadership of the governments to these disasters, the insurers, the lawyers, and air carriers. You know, for example, I think one example you mentioned was that American Airlines had their most profitable day on the day that one of their planes exploded You know, when 300 people were killed. So, I mean, to me, that was like the most sickening part about, the, about that book. Do you, you mind going into that a little bit more and, and, and kind of expressing some of your sentiments toward that?
0: Yeah, and I, and I always tried, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, I tried to be very careful because I, I, I wrote it the way I try to work, which is I always imagine there's a family member standing next to me. And mm-hmm. I asked myself, if I were that family member, would I be glad that Kenyon or Robert, somebody like me, was involved or would I be unhappy? and frustrated. And and I always want the answer to be that I I was glad I was, you know, I saw that there was respect and dignity because I I think that's such an important, you know, human rights value. So I I tried to be very careful in the book about how I describe things. Um, uh, Leadership, and this becomes a problem in events because, again, people don't know what to expect. And because of our system in the U.S. and a lot of systems, there's never a single person in charge. There are multiple people in charge of certain segments or functions the problem is there's the family has to go through all those segments and there's not a clear well this is your responsibility this is my responsibility that's where the families get stuck and for the airlines and i'm particularly harsh on u.s. air carriers because i think they really earned the family assistance law with their behavior and you know in the, the, the mid-90s 94 to 96 very specifically and i use the example with american airlines it was a Let's say DC-9 or DC-10 lost an engine. And um, the highlight was that because of the way insurance is done for planes, it has a fixed value. So insurance company will write a check 7 to 14 days for the value of the airplane. Even if it's not the real value, It's you know, it's, in this case, the plane was very old and um, had, you know its value had been written down. But because of the way the policy is, it was insured for, I forget why I put in the book, $26 million, something like that. Um, but, yet, families, the process for settlement can be so difficult. If you, if you bear with me for a minute, and I, I try to, again, go over this a little bit in the book, if you, if you think of a, the settlement as we have a value of life, an accountant can look at me and say, here's what I'm worth today. There's nothing to do with what I think I'm worth. It's based on who do I support, how much do I earn in my demographics. It's, it's really not very subjective. And accountants anywhere can usually look at a person and come up with, their value of life, not to to be insensitive. So if we have insurance that covers that, why is it difficult then? Well, it's difficult if the families don't feel that people are talking to them or helping them. Their first call wasn't to a lawyer. Their first call wasn't to newspaper. Their first call was to the airline to say, oh my God, my loved ones died, help me understand what's going on. And when they're met with a wall of silence, when they're met with um, games, when they're met with, well, I can't tell you. Then all that does is irritate irritate them and drive them to the litigation. And litigation, to me, can be an extension of rage. The settlement doesn't have to be a a difficult process. So families will get their solicitors, and the families are lawyers, and the families' lawyers will take a cue from them, or the families will take a cue from the lawyers. Then the insurance companies will have their lawyers, and to them, this is a process doable by the hour that can go on for years. Remembering the family that went through this is the one that didn't want this to happen as a moneymaker, would have given anything for it not to have occurred, but now needs to make to be whole because guess what? There's still college payments, there's still mortgage payments, there's cost of living. life has to go on. And for a family who loses someone in a mass fatality, it can be difficult because if we don't have a left one right, if we don't have an identification or disease. Well, you can't close out bank accounts. You can't do legal actions. And so families can have their accounts locked, frozen. But the bills don't stop. So this is what I mean about not making it worse. And that story about American Airlines with the, the payment received for the airplane wasn't something they gloated about. It wasn't something they were happy about. It was to highlight that. I wish they had taken that same understanding of someone in America that looked at that and said, oh my God, are we doing the same quick settlement for the families?
2: And so part of your job isn't just like, you know, the actual physical recovery, it's the emotional recovery, and part of that emotional recovery is, you know, the response from the governments, from, um, you know, the companies doing it, so part of that is managing that, but when... You know, kind of what I've noticed, or at least um, there were plenty of examples from the book where those companies, those entities, the government—they didn't respond in a way um, that was trustworthy or even honest from the start. And when you do that, that you know, mistrust, anger is going to set in. And then once mistrust sets in, I mean, that leads to a, a you know, a pretty big slippery slope with conspiracy theories. And you know, the reason I bring that up is because. Obviously, with the 9-11 recent um, anniversary, um, that is part of the reason why there's so many conspiracies. I'm not going to go into my personal opinion of it. But, you know, um, I mean, when you when you managed the disaster of, you know, you managed 9-11, what did you see there um, that either, I guess, proves or disproves whether there was a conspiracy there um, and kind of explain how, you know, either way um, with that? I mean, what, what did you see when you're at 9-11, and did that support anything with? You know, a conspiracy.
0: See, you always have to define because you can have the conspiracy about the planning, and you can have the conspiracy about what actually occurred at the event. And so, I have no knowledge because I was involved in any of the research on you know how the 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 planning of the hijackers, their Mm. their entrance, their schools, what government backed or not backed. But what we do to answer these questions to families is we bring in technical experts. And I believe for 9-11, we actually brought in an architect or an engineer with a floor plan or a map to show families how a building could collapse like it did. And we, we're we very careful. And I always look at a scene when I used to actually bury um, dead bodies to teach law enforcement, police officers, how to recover them. I always remind people... If you go to the lab and say, hey, confirm this, then in your mind you've made something up. You need to take your specimen, your sample, to the lab and say, tell me what it means. You're the forensic person. Tell me what it means. You don't ever go into a scene with an idea of what's occurred. You go into a scene and they let the evidence tell you what's occurred. And if you can't reach 100% conclusion, then you say you can't reach a conclusion, and you leave it at that, So for us, we bring in experts and say, this is how a building like this could collapse. These are where we made recoveries for people. These are what the evidence would show. This is what a wreckage would look like. I know on expectation you may have this idea that there will be this big pit somewhere or there will be hundreds of pieces of of an airplane. This is typically what happens when we see a loss. And I always try to relate to families similar events and set expectations about investigations. And Swiss Air, Swiss and Canadians are well respected in the world. And Swiss Air 111, for example, the plane that went down September 1998, it was a four-year investigation. Um, you know, with $38 million. It's, it's, it people don't understand that because the media doesn't report that. So it's about setting expectations for them.
1: Mm. So what happens um, when a plane crashes? Why is it not um, what we think it is?
2: But,
0: so you have to look at the different people involved. So first of all, start with the boarding process. Airlines get boarding passes. If it's a domestic flight, they just have your name. The loyalty databases aren't usually connected, and loyalty databases aren't often up to date. So the airline doesn't always have a number to call. So you've got to call the airline. People under stress do different things. On When I fight United, as you, you, know, you introduced my name, is Robert A. Jensen. I always go by Robert A. Well, it's truncated, so I'm Roberta. Well, my family calls me Andrew. So under stress, they're going to call the airline and ask for an Andrew. They're going to say, there is no Andrew. So then the family's going to get mad. Then there's a jurisdiction. Who's in charge? Well, California has... Uh, You know, the sheriff coroner in almost all counties, some have medical examiners, like Ventura, where we lost Alaska Airlines, or Humboldt, that has a public administrator. So you're going to have a different authority in each county. Louisiana has the um, Napoleonic Code, so their coroners have very different roles. Then you have the NTSB that will come in and potentially the FBI. And they'll have to decide, first of all, who's in charge. Go back to TW800. Is it a terrorist attack, a criminal event, or an accident? that determines who's in charge. Then all the agencies that come in to be involved with the fire, the rescue. So you end up with 25, 30 different agencies involved who all have different acronyms on the back of their jackets, who probably haven't done this except for one or two of the agencies. And then you have the families who are trying to figure out what's going on. And the airline who's in shock because they've lost they're passengers. They've lost their employees. And even though I describe some, some atrocious behavior, most people don't wake up to do a bad job. Most people don't go to an event and say, it's my day to hurt a family. They're afraid. That scares people. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to make a mistake because they just had a mistake. that was pretty costly. And a lot of CEOs I, I talked to, and I, I think I mentioned a few of these stories in the book about how absolutely petrified they are to stand up in front of the families
1: mm-hmm. what, what do you think that um, can be done better i mean i 'm sure there's a ton of things, but i, I mean what is there a particular in, uh, a particular sort of thing that you think um, mm-hmm should be regulated better or presented better? Um, and is it, is it really possible to do?
0: Well, I think it's always possible to do better. I think training. But, you know, in restricted budgets, you're asking people to plan for something that may not occur. Uh, you know, New York City, the 9-11 was the first point crash they'd had in, gosh, 20 years. TWA hadn't happened in New York City. It happened in, you know, off the of Mauritius. So it was a completely different Jurisdiction, Suffolk County Medical Examiner, not the New York City Medical Examiner. So training is a little bit hard because you're asking people to train for something that is, is, may not occur in their jurisdiction. You're asking people to try to understand something that absolutely terrifies them. Um, earthquakes, you have the New Madrid fault that runs up the you know the St. Louis Valley in the, the central United States. It'd be horrific when it goes and it will one day. Um, so it's training, it's preparation for businesses, it's helping the business understand that families don't call their attorneys first, they call them first. So if you start defensively, you're losing, you're losing the best opportunity you had to be successful. And success in hospitality is helping people through the process because most of the blame isn't about what occurred. Because most families understand that things happen. People make mistakes. That things happen. You can't prevent every criminal attack. It's not possible. We're not going to prevent natural disasters. But what they expect of the people they're facing is that you have a plan on how to deal with the consequences.
1: So the book takes it home and reads it. Um, what is it that you hope they take away from it? What is it you want to get across to most readers?
0: Well, I hope, and again, probably different things for different readers. I hope it demystifies um, the process. I hope it gives a little more understanding, a little more tolerance for what the system has to deal with. I hope that for people who have friends, you know, God forbid, suffer loss. That maybe we'll feel a little more comfortable about how to approach them, what to say and what not to say. Um, I, it's hard to say because, it, it, again, it was written... I think to be just. Here's what's happened, and here's here's how we're doing it, and maybe how we can do it better. Which, I know. What did you take? I, I think you guys have both read it. What did you take away? I'll
1: turn yeah. the interview around. It'll be my point. oh, there you yeah. go. Well Put played, it on well me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll let you take that one
2: first. Well, <laughs> I, I
1: sort of take it as uh, I. Th- it's an understanding of what goes on in the process. It's an understanding of what you go through and your team, let's say, people in your position have to go through. Um, It's giving us a point of view that we would never be part of. I would never see any of this or know about a lot of what goes on uh, because so little is presented to us. Like we get so little um, of that. It's kind of like, oh, here's the crash, this many people, you know, you get a couple of days of that. Then they're on to the next thing. But you don't really... Understand all the the process of what goes on um, on the ground where the accident happened. So I think that for me, that's kind of the biggest thing I get.
2: And, you know, for me, I mean, and there was a lot of stories that that stuck out. Um, but to me, to kind of piggyback on that, is that you know, you're what I found is that you were trying to obviously help, but you're trying to apply logic and rationale to something that is and emotional. That is something completely illogical and, and irrational and how do we deal with that and how can we respond to that and in, in which ways that we won't necessarily pin us down for life and in which ways that we can still move on and continue um, to do so.
0: Yeah, and, I, and that's good. That's, those are, were some of the goals of the book. And so I, I feel good about that. Thank you. I, and some of the other stuff for different people are, we're entering a phase where, my gosh, the anxiety level, um, people are, are analysis, you know, paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually think the world's that much different. I mean, I, you look at England after the Blitz or countries that rebuilt themselves after war. And, I, and again, I've been through the Balkans in 95. I was in Haiti in 93 after years of the embargo in New York City. And people forget in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, after the bombing, there were over 400 buildings damaged or condemned. Um, because of that bomb. I mean, it was the, the geographical damage was much more significant than the, the towers in New York. And, and people rebuild and there's resilience, but I think people forget about what they can accomplish. And I think people spend so much time focusing on things they can't control and have, I, at a point, almost confused convenience with necessity. And so we lose power for a little bit, and think, oh, my God, it's horrible. What are we going to do? i lost my phone. i lost electricity. Well, it's a convenience if it's just hot or uncomfortable. It's a necessity if you have an oxygen generator that you need. But then you should have a backup point. And I, I hope some of the takeaways from the book isn't a fear of, you know, going out in the world, but an understanding that there's a lot you can control. And that's what you should focus on, and don't worry about the stuff you can't control.
1: Well, I'm, st- I'm staying home. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, you,
0: you live in California. I mean, you know, it's people <laughs> shake or bake. We're having some horrible fires and times out there, but it's a great state, and people recover.
1: Yeah. Well, every, I've been up in, in my Canadian house there up in, um, since the pandemic started, so it's been the uh, same sort of thing. Uh, lots of fires here, too.
2: So. And, and, and to continue, kind of what you were talking about before—the the randomness and, um, and and the control factor—is that you know a question that you kept bringing up in the book was when someone is killed um, or you know has a near death this in it in a disaster, you, you ask yourself, was it luck or was it just not their time? And kind of like to me, what I took away from that is another way of saying is that you know is life and death are they either random and chaotic? Is life and death random and chaotic, or is it organized and systematic? So I know you didn't really necessarily. Go into that, but do you mind extrapolating upon those questions and, and that and you know that notion that you kept kind of bringing up in the book.
0: Well, I guess an example: I'm in you know the water, you know in Florida, water's great. You go in a boat, sailboat, you're going to say cross the Pacific, and one night a whale breaches and your boat capsizes and sinks. And have you done anything wrong? Probably not. It's what happens when you're at sea. So now you're in the water and you're a life raft, and it takes 30 days for a passing ship to see you. So in that 30 days, if you had preparation, if you had water, if you had survival rations, if you had your boat set up for that emergency, and you asked lasted 30 days till oh, the freighter, which is luck, sees you, then your preparation gave opportunity a chance to occur. Bad luck, the boat sank. Preparation was deliberate. Good luck that the freighter found you but your preparation gave time for luck to occur. So I don't think people can, I think people sometimes hasten their time up. There's a lot of stupid behavior in the world, but there are times that you can't control it. So again, I don't worry about what I can't control. Uh, I don't, you know, when you're a deputy, you, you you do the best you can, you want to go to work and you want to come home. And, um, sometimes people don't want you to come home, but that's what your training's for. And sometimes it just doesn't work, sadly. But with a lot of things in life, you can give yourself an opportunity for better luck or better things to happen. The lack of preparedness, though, wrongs you of that.
2: Mm.
1: So, so the bottom line is that anytime someone's going on a trip, they've got to call up Robert. No, <laughs> well, the bottom line is this. That's the last thing you wanted. Yeah, <laughs> no, you know, gonna... <laughs>
0: you know I, when I show up, no one's ever, it's not a good thing when I show up.
1: <laughs> had, um,
2: That's normally the end of vacation, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, I had. I was doing a what was a world travel conference and um, travel journalism conference in Bangkok, and um, uh, I think it was David Cameron had just been on, and then a uh, CEO of a company, a really great guy. Um, he gets on and he, and he was talking. And he says, "Yeah, I mean, here's a guy who I hate to call. I never like to see him." <laughs> it's like no, I'm not sure I should take that, but I but I get it. So i not, not, not,
1: not the one we're looking for. for. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know it's. Which which? When you go through these cases, which one has had, uh, um, let's say the most lasting impact on you?
0: That's a good question, and I, I want to get asked a lot. And uh, my answer is. They're all different. You, you don't go to any incident and come back the same. you are always going to come back a little bit different. That's the cumulative effect that, makes, that can make this work hard. It's, you know, when you start holding a glass of water up, it's not so heavy, but you hold it up over time and add a little bit more water each time it gets pretty heavy. Um, and, but at the end of the day, none of them are about me because no one forced me to go, and I'm not going because something happened to me. I'm going because I was asked to go help it really matters for the families because it's, it's going to have the impact for
2: them. Yeah, there's, I guess there's no real difference once, you know, um, death is death and death is death. Um, but what about when it comes to actually managing the different type of disasters, man-made versus natural? I mean, would you say that there's differences there in your response, or it's really just all the same under one umbrella? Well,
0: the consequences, and again, go back to consequences, so sometimes in man-made, it's a little more controlled for other resources because you're not competing for life-saving. In natural disasters, you may you have to make a decision, like when we went into Haiti, how many people do I actually bring into Haiti because every person I bring is going to need food and water, and, and there's people who need food and water that don't have a choice where they are because they live there. So it's understanding the logistics of the differences, and then crime scenes versus non-crime scenes, and... Almost all of them are political. They all all have problems. They're just, you know, each event will have its own special problems. The tsunami. Um, You know, we had 33 countries, and I can remember the first couple meetings where ambassadors were at these meetings from different countries, and they they failed to react. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book, the big problem with governments and people, is they fail to recognize the crisis um, in a timely manner. They wait until it's much worse than it had to be. And, you know, with the Boxing Day tsunami, you know, 250,000 people killed them and several hundred from multiple European countries. And their governments, I don't think, could comprehend that such a thing could occur. And when it did, they were slow to react. And so we are in these meetings and you get down there saying, well, I'm, I'm responsible for, you know, the Swedes or I'm responsible for Germans or I'm responsible for the Austrians. And it's like, as you understand that all we have here, several thousand deceased who are male or female that's about all we can tell right now so we don't know who's who and if you're going to try to solve it by who's who you're going to take a process and make it much harder than it has to be we need a system these are people of the world we have 33 teams from 33 countries here let's just divide and start working out and working this and here's the messages but because they hadn't been through it and they were they were getting beat up at home, you know, it's that fear that drives that reaction. So things like those are difficult, but different incident, different problem.
1: At this point in in your life, um, where do you see yourself going? Are you going to keep doing this kind of work, or are you going to retire sometime soon? Well, um,
0: we've just actually sold the company. So, um, you know, I liked it so much, but all things have to come to an end, and it's time for a new generation of people To take hopefully the training, the education, and take the company and the system to the next level. There's some goals that need to be accomplished, but not by me. So I'm I'll stay through the end of the year to help the uh, the public company that that purchased it, which I thought was a was a good match. And um, then I want to share lessons. I want to you know the point of the book. I want to help people understand stuff. And then I want to focus on the things that I put aside that I enjoy photography, bike riding, scuba, travel. I'd like to be able to not have my phone by my bed and um, things like that and not not unpack the suitcase and then, then I come back and have my husband feel that we can plan something and the certainty that will occur not worrying that, well, we're going to go. And I always use examples with my ex-wife once and my daughter, she my ex-wife told my daughter, oh, daddy will be home. And my, ex-wife said, or no, my daughter said, no, mom, dad said he's planning to be home. So I, I don't want to have any more
1: of those. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be really hard on, on, on everybody around you in that way for that kind of, um, what kind of training does someone go through to get into that kind of job?
0: Well, I, I, I think that there's so many different fields, the management really is just, I guess, having, having the right personality or the, the confidence, um, I, I guess one of the things I don't suffer for is self-doubt. Um, not being arrogant, just being confident, because what people are looking for in leadership is confidence. But from the technical skills, there's a lot of feeder areas. I, mean, I was a firefighter in Virginia, and I was stationed there in the Army. Um, for Prince George County, uh, the deputy sheriff, law enforcement helped, spent a lot of time in wards. Um, the army with the logistics and the planning, uh, funeral directors are a lot, uh, social workers. It, it's really being a, a jack of all trades and understanding how each one impacts the other. They're very specific jobs for investigators, for example, but not all investigators are really good to talk to families. Um, but a lot of them should be because families need to understand the process.
2: Yeah, I mean, that could definitely be, um, that's one part of the process, but, you know, I'm going to drop and plant a seed here for you for your uh, as you ride off into the sunset in Kenyon. Um, maybe one thing that you may look into or, or help people with is that a lot of, after these disasters, there's always a lot of scams. I think one that you mentioned is that when somebody died, um, a couple of men died there was a paternity suit that came out after the fact but one of these men were gay so there's no way that could have you know obviously happened so um... but that is a common thing that happens after these disasters these these scams I and mean, what, what's what's one of the worst that's that's you've seen and oh. how can we how can we manage that
0: well i mean after the, the crash that killed the um... That took out you know a good part of the polish government some of their credit cards were used some of the russian soldiers who recovered the crash scene um, used their credit cards it's, it's sadly reminding people about all the protections that need to take place. Uh, the biggest part to me isn't the scams. It's the same problems we have in life, falls and death. And, and I'm a real big believer in a couple documents. Your passport shows that you're a citizen of a specific country or two or three countries, and, and that country is going to project itself to look after you. you. Birth certificate establishes your name identity. A marriage certificate, and this is why I'm so big on marriage equality, is not a religious document. It's a document that says this is the person I've chosen to speak for me. This is a person I've chosen as an adult to replace or take over for the family I was born to. And so things like marriage certificates and then having documents as if I were dead What would I want a court to understand about who is to care for me, who is to make decisions for me? And, you know, 90, 85% of the families, that goes pretty smoothly. But it's the 15% of the families or the 5 or 10% that I always say Mother Teresa would have problems with, Um, where there's acrimony, there's bitterness, there's a lot of unresolved issues, and there's fighting. And what a horrible way to add to it already traumatic event is when you can't even decide who can make disposition of the deceased or who's going to take their personal effects because we're fighting over who who should that be when the simple answer is the person involved could have left direction. We will all die one day I hope for most of us it's not anytime soon but because I don't know when I want to make it as easy as possible, and I don't want my husband as an example. You know, having a husband puts me in a little bit different situation in some countries, in some states in the U.S., you know, Texas trying to, to change that now. I, I want to make sure there's no ambiguity or no lack of clarity on who I consider my family to be and who is to make decisions for me.
1: Mm. So now the book, I'm sure, will be sold everywhere. Um, are you? Do you have a website up and running that people can come find you on and find out more about you?
0: Yeah, I created a website for me. It's just www.robertajensen.com, dot com, and I I put the books on there. My I'm trying to um, get my photography. I've got thousands of pictures around the world. That I'd like to organize and put up just because I think photography is neat. And, um, I do kind of a what I call a reasoning blog, and where I, I'm trying to add more things on. Uh, you might want to consider this or think about this. There's nothing for sale. You can't buy anything on it because I, at this point, I'm just happy to share. And then um, there's all the, like I'll post this interview when it comes out, and TV and, and radio. So if you want to learn more about mass fatalities or, or the history, there's some information there.
1: Gonna you know, have some dancing videos up there too, or something? Or? Uh,
0: no, but I have some old ones from back in '95 from Oklahoma City, and I'll eventually put some from Bosnia. Just because, um, you know, this is always everyone's always interested in what goes on behind the, the yellow tape. As I, as I talk about the books, so I I've got some some videos of that. But no, none of the uh, none of my trips to Everest or in the water or anything <laughs> like that. Oh,
2: Robert, okay. if you want to see a disaster, just watch Alan dance.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't have. Uh, I'm not good.
2: How, how would you manage that? That's what, <laughs> a, a dance lesson.
0: I would just say, man, that's more power to you. And you know,
2: <laughs> if you can dance like no one
0: cares. Then that's uh, I'm impressed because I uh, I have no coordination and I can't sing. My daughter once told me that my voice was too special to be shared.
1: Well,
2: that's a nice <laughs> My uh, my ex used to say I used to hit every note with a sledgehammer, so I can commiserate there a little bit for sure. I
0: took a music class in college, and the professor offered me a seat if I never darkened the door <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Now you learn how
1: to get through school. <laughs> um, what do you? That's the pandemic thing. Um, it, that's got to really take its toll on this kind of work as well, right?
0: Yeah, we had um, we we unfortunately had to put in place some what I call massive uh, temporary mortuaries um, for overflow and we had to send teams to uh, New York and some other places that just didn't have enough people to, to go into the homes to recover the bodies. The thing that, that concerns me about the pandemic, I and mean, I, mean, I use crisis, so to me, there's the actual response phase and then there's a dealing with the consequences. And I think we're just now finishing the response phase. It's kind of like there's been a big fire. The fire trucks are now being pulled back to the station. The fire trucks, you know, they got to clean up the hoses, they got to roll the hoses, they got to clean the gear because they don't know when the next fire is. So, all those doctors, those nurses, those corners investigators, those uh, epidemiological researchers, healthcare people, they they're exhausted. And then the consequences are. I think the anxiety levels for people gone through the roof. I think there's people who are never going to be comfortable. Well, you know, the school was a good option, so I could work because my, my kids would always be in school. Well, I don't think a lot of people predicted schools would be closed for the length of period. And, and we've had pandemics before, and we'll have them again. They're not unpredictable. Um, and, but I think people, because, again, that, that resilience factor, lack of resilience, are, are going to work the consequences of this. I think we're just now starting to feel, and, and I, I'm not optimistic. Um, I see the ability to concentrate for people is gone. I see what you know that you notice the little irritations that are now becoming much worse. People flashing, people, you know, not flashing as a fine, you know, I'll be a, a raincoat, but where they go from zero to a hundred for overreaction because of the simple request and to me those are all manifestations of people's ability to cope being exhausted and, um, and I think that's what we're starting to see with the consequences. Um, I also worry very much about the education system because kids at different ages always suffer trauma or grief very differently. And, you know, plane crash will affect a lot of people or bombing. But meet a person in the world who hasn't been impacted by the pandemic, either economically or through a personal loss, or they knew someone who passed or they knew someone who almost died. So it's affected everyone. And so there's not really that, that reservoir you can go to and say, help me out of here because you didn't go through this, and I'm going through it, and I need some help. Um, we'll get through it but it's
1: going to require some, some real strength. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been, been quite an event. Um, well, this is a very interesting conversation, as always. Um, the book we've been talking about is Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living, and our guest is the author, Robert A. Jensen. Thank you for taking the time.
0: You're welcome.
2: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews.
0: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows
1: from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been complete the end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you.
0: If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production
2: of Something Way Media.